welcome to another episode of Sweet Valley Online, where evil triplets come together to snark Sweet Valley twins and explore the darkness that lurks just beneath the surface of Sweet Valley. We recap three Sweet Valley twins books each month. You can find all our recaps and previous podcast episodes at sweetvalley.online. We are also on Facebook at facebook.com slash sweetvalleyonline and on Tumblr at sweetvalleyonline.tumblr.com. Our music is provided by Stuart Taylor of Legacy Breakfast. You can contact him at taylorstuart602 at gmail.com if you want to commission your own music. All of this information will be in the show notes. I wing, I love dogs, and I burn Sweet Valley to the ground after rescuing all the dogs. I'm here with my not-so-evil triplets, Dove and Raven. I'm Dove, and I hated my book this week. That's all I have to say. I'm Raven. I quite enjoyed my book this week, although everybody else seemed to dislike it. I would prefer it if Sweet Valley was not burnt to the ground, apart from Madame Andre's ballet studio, studio, because fuck Madame Andre. Too late, I burned it all. (laughs) Before we get into the books, I want to quickly say that we'll be announcing a new project soon, and if you've ever wanted to recap some nostalgic media, we'd like to talk to you. Email us at recappers at sweetvalley.online. This month, we read book number 26, Taking Charge, number 27, Teamwork, and number 28, April Fool, with an exclamation mark. <laughs> the exclamation mark is important. Right. I guess we start with me, don't we? We do start we with do. you. I recap Taking Charge, in which we meet the long-term friend that the twins have always had, but never mentioned, Patrick Morris. Patrick has the blues because his parents have suddenly become super strict, restricting how many friends he can have over after school, one, limiting his social life, no calls after 6pm and an early curfew, and cutting his allowance in half. The twins, Jessica especially, regard these as punishments, which is interesting because it certainly implies she's aware of the concept. Patrick wants to join the school band, but his parents say no, he won't be able to juggle schoolwork and music at the same time. Patrick joins the band without their permission and is able to borrow a saxophone from the school, which he practices on at the Wakefield compound. When his parents find out he's been secretly musicking, they hit the roof, and Patrick decides to run away because he cannot deal with their rules anymore. The first night, he stays at Winston Egbert's house, and when St. Elizabeth finds this out, she manages to hold her tongue for all of 20 minutes before blurting to the Morris parents. Patrick anticipates this Liz-like behaviour and runs away from Winston's house and ends up in a condemned building. After some searing indifference from the emergency services, Mr Morris saves his son single-handedly and all is revealed. Mr Morris lost his job, hence the stern behaviour. But all is well, he has a new job and Patrick can stay on the school band. Yay! Isn't life grand when you're in Sweet Valley? Marvellous. Excellent. Excellent um, recap of what happened there. <laughs> it was truly, truly an awful book. I was much more invested in the B plot, which was that Elizabeth, no, not Elizabeth, Jessica was paired with Winston Egbert in a science project and they had to work together. And Winston was completely unflappable in the face of all of Jessica's beauty and popularity and psychopathy. And I just started shipping them. That could well be a mark of how uninvolved I was. 
in the A plot, which was just bollocks. I seem to remember Raven reading a couple of pages of it on his Kindle, and he just looks up at me and goes, the dad lost his job, didn't he? Yeah, literally telegraphed on page four. It was a bit obvious, to be fair. Although I do quite like the fact that you're shipping Jespert, or whatever you want to call the, the pairing. Is that endgame, do you think, for the series? Ah, well, I have made some comments in various uh, recaps saying that you've met the endgame for Stephen's relationship and... Surely the, the endgame for Stephen's relationship is Jessica. Or prison. <laughs> One of the two. Both. <laughs> Without diving into incest, you're not entirely wrong if you take this at Sweet Valley Twins level. Uh, you've also met the mother of Ken Matthews' child, so... Um, but Ken yeah. Matthews is a child. Is his kid bigger than him? I don't know. It's not born by the end of the series. Dear oh. God, I hope it is. It's also, an embryo. I'm not prepared to be talking about how we're still having to go until they're old enough to be having kids of their own. No, <laughs> that's not how long we're recapping. I refuse to live in Sweet Valley for this long. I refuse. Yeah, it's like they're going to do the kids version, like the the offspring version of the whole thing. Um, 186 bo- um, books about the children. Of Jessica Quit. and Elizabeth Wakefield. Copyright that idea before Francine <laughs> Pascal takes it and makes another billion off these shit books. Bite your tongue. Because by the time we get to the end, that is clearly what's going to happen and we have to start all over with little pre-teen assholes. Ooh, you know what we should do? We should ask uh, Catherine Applegate and Michael Grant how they got into ghosting. And then we'll ghost this new series. Yes, because Dove is now BFS with Michael Grant and Catherine Applegate. She'll tell you all about it. They tweeted me. I matter. Bless you. I am, I am probably the most successful human being that ever went to my school. Catherine Applegate and Michael Grant acknowledged me. Nice. Are we going to talk about that now, or are we going to go back to the recap of the book and talk about it after that? Well, I think it's very clear that none of us want to talk about this book, but, you know, it's sort Thanks of... Thanks for tuning in, listeners. <laughs> you know, we're obligated to do, and we are doing this as a public service. You know, we are reading this shit so that other people don't have to. So let's start ripping it to pieces. Go! Okay, well, I thought the B-plot was good. Um, however, I hated Jessica all the way through the, the B-plot. Because she was shirking Jess. She was the Jess that wasn't coming up with cool ideas. She was just going, oh, I don't like mouldy bread. Nobody likes mouldy bread, Jessica. It's mouldy fucking bread. But it was like, oh, yeah, oh, well, Winston, he needs to go and do this all by himself because that'll make him come out of his shell. So I'm, I'm offering a public service, really, when I go to the mall with bloody Lila to look at a purple thing again. And it's just like, no, Jess, we don't like you when you're like this. Or personally, I don't like you when you're like this. I much prefer Jessica when she's doing fun things and coming up with schemes and being creative and enterprising rather than just being lazy. I agree with all of that, but I absolutely loved how completely unflappable Winston was. Like, he never had that that moment of, I mean, you've read later books, so uh, Sandra Ferris, who crumbles in the face of popular people because they're far more important. Whereas Winston's just like, no, you let me down. I don't like you, I'm angry with you at the moment. Or, you know, or I don't want to do mouldy bread. Yeah, well, I want an A+, so suck it up, Jess. I can sort of see that, but isn't that Randy's shtick? Because didn't Randy do the whole 
nerd who was unflappable and then became class body president or something earlier on. True, but I think maybe nerds are just immune to Wakefield bullshit. Well, they're immune to Jessica's bullshit. I feel like several of the nerds fall under Elizabeth often. Yeah, that's true. She does come across as queen nerd. Yes, she is not our queen. <laughs> I feel like, too, that uh, Jessica's only time she gets upset over not helping Winston with the project and, and then presenting it at the library is the fact that she skips out telling people and herself that it's for Winston's own good. She skips out to go to Bruce's party, which ends up not being much of a party at all, and she's upset that she skipped the library, not because she did the wrong thing, but because she wanted to be there for all the accolades and attention for people. So, Jessica wanted to be the center of attention, didn't get in at the party, and decided the library would have been better because she could have been the center of attention. That is pure Jessica, and that little bit delighted me. Unfortunately, it's only like two sentences of this book. I did quite like the fact that Bruce's party was absolutely rubbish. It's like, Bruce Patman, he's gorgeous, he's the best thing ever, he's the sexiest guy, and he's got a, rich, he's got a slightly rich dad, and etc, etc. And his party was just a bunch of idiots burping, basically. Just an awful, awful gathering with no thought put into it. You know when Lila throws a party, it's going to be absolutely epic. But when Bruce does it, it's basically at the gathering variant of the ape play from the... Uh, the well, what book was that? The Ape book? Boys Against Girls. Boys we Against are Girls, never, that's it. We're never getting away from that, are we? That is always going to be, like, the lowest point. Um, you know, <laughs> not only is the sexism bad, but the play was awful as well, you know. The lowest point in a litany of low points. Yeah, that's almost an achievement. Mm. Um, on the subject of Lila having an epic party... Wing at some point will be recapping the Carnival Ghost, and I personally believe that is Lila's best party ever, and that has the added bonus of being a Michael Grant, a Catherine Applegate book. So, I really wish we could fast forward to then because it is the best super chiller ever. I am so excited about that one on so many levels, but alas, we cannot fast forward because if we could, I would skip pretty much every book of the series, and you would shout at me a lot. You're like, please give me the book in which the twins die. <laughs> I'll read yes. that one. I'll recap the hell out of that book. I'll write that one if I have to. <laughs> we really should. Like, the yeah. three of us should get together and just come up with something and... Yeah. Okay, it. writing prompt. Here's a writing prompt for you. And then Elizabeth turned the gun on herself. I would just like to point out that I have a folder <coughs> I genuinely believed was created by Wing, but apparently it, it was created by me. And the folder is called In Which Everyone Dies. <laughs> That's on our shared drive on Google, by the way. We nice. don't share a computer. We're not that creepy yet. Yet. I mean, I was involved in this folder and the notes inside of it, but she came up with it. I want to point out to everyone, not me for once, it was all done. So, do you reckon we should somewhat talk about the A plot? I mean, I know, like... We're all dragging our feet and changing the subject at the drop of a hat, but, you know, Patrick Morris, that happened. Yeah. I mean, I like the fact that he was playing the saxophone, which is, to be honest, the uncoolest of the cool instruments. You're like, saxophone, yeah, that's sexy. I, I, we all remember the scene in Lost Boys when the guy gets his shirt off, and, you know, I still believe in all that, but it's still a little bit yakety sax, you know? It's, it's still a little bit Bill Clinton. 
Yeah. Okay, I know we're talking about the A plot, but hold on, because you said it's the unsexiest of the sexy instruments. Yeah. So now I need a list of the sexy instruments. Go. Bass is the, the number. Bass and bass and guitar. Uh, ba- bass is slightly sexier than guitar. But I agree. Bass, bass is also a little pervier. Drums isn't sexy. I think it used to be, but I don't think drums is 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 sexy. Wrong. You're wrong. Drums are totally sexy. All right. Well. Raven used to play drums in a band. Yes, called I did. Badger. Yeah. I did, and I was very, very average. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, what, what, what are the other sexy instruments? I don't think wind instruments... I mean, it's like, clarinet, is that sexy? Of course it's not fucking sexy. I think the tambourine and the triangle are the lowest of the low. Though. No, I don't agree. I think something like the, the French horn, or the tuba. It's like, Ooh. hey, babe. <laughs> you know, you can't really... <laughs> flirting with a tuba it's not exactly <laughs> going to go well is it do you want to come back I to my know. place <laughs> the marching sousaphones are pretty flashy on the field <laughs> the sousaphones yeah <laughs> that's what you call it. I'm sure you do yeah that's great yeah yeah, uh, yeah. I like your list I do like your list so as a clarinet player I would like to point out that it's all in the player you can totally be a sexy clarinet player oh of course of course of course <laughs> you can be a sexy clarinet player there's the clarinet that is not inherently sexy no that's very true mm. the piccolo also not very sexy very <laughs> high that's my piccolo impression <laughs> beautiful thank you um, the violin's quite sexy I'd say Ooh. I agree. But the viola is is not, and that is the cello. Even though it, you get to spread your legs, it is not a sexy instrument. I think the flute is a dramatic in, instrument. Like, if someone plays the flute, they're probably going to die tragically, and you're going to hear flute music. You think that's? You think the flute is a dramatic instrument? You know. Do you know like, the definition of drama. Well, I mean, I can just imagine someone tragically. <laughs> dying as a flute player and then it's like oh you can hear flute music in her bedroom from time to time the only way you know, tragically die as a flute player is if somebody rammed a flute into your eye <laughs> which is very likely to happen <laughs> yeah oh yeah. i think a piano's sexy a piano is sexy yes a piano yes, is a sexy very. yeah again um we have taken a, a, a wild left at the traffic lights it's the How a much? plot nobody cares literally <laughs> nobody cares about what's his name patrick yeah yeah no one cares about patrick you can climb in that house and have the house fall on him for all i get look in the recap itself we went off on tangents about the definition of literally versus figuratively <laughs> When the you have to wait 48 hours for uh, a missing person report to be put in, when that entered pop culture, oh. and how very wrong it is, and I think some other nitpicky legal issues. So talking about sexy musical instruments is pretty much a step up from our, our digressions in the book itself. That is fair, yeah, I'll give you that. And there was my massive rant about the emergency services because basically Patrick was in this condemned building. And I, I, I love the front cover, by the way. It really does look like Elizabeth is trying to put Patrick into America's most dangerous timeouts. But he's in this condemned building and the fire brigade rock up and they're like, yeah, there's nothing we can do. And they just kind of stand around and have a coffee and a cigarette and, you know, contemplate the mortality of the 11-year-old who's just like clunk. 
falling through this floor to his death and everyone's like yeah but there's nothing we can do i mean we've got a net in the back we will wasn't use it, that wasn't it a case when of, dad we, prompts us sorry wasn't it a case of uh, yeah we can't do anything until somebody turns up with the big hose or something ridiculous like that or we need the big ladder we can't get up there without the big ladder well that doesn't make sense because at one point when patrick's dad actually goes into the building i think they're on the third floor uh, this is the whole american versus english we label our floors differently but let's yeah. say third floor that sort of covers everything doesn't and cover the second floor shut up <laughs> <laughs> put yourself on mute and stop being unhelpful um <laughs> but there is a fireman at the top of a ladder looking in the window just going oh there's nothing we can do and so patrick's dad this middle-aged dude is just walking across this floor which is gonna fall and crash and die to get his son back and the fireman's just watching him going oh i wouldn't i fucking wouldn't yeah just sat, imagine the fireman there with a cup of tea and a digestive oh he's gonna go for it you know oh yeah he has Oh, I've dropped some biscuit in me brew. Hang on. Yeah, calling down to the other fireman. Oh, it looks bad, mate. Yeah. Maybe that's what Patrick's job's Patrick's dad's new job is. He goes to be head of the fucking fire brigade because he's the only one with a spine. And he's like, yeah, okay, what we're going to do first, basic training for the lot of you. You're all a bunch of arseholes. Yeah, and then I, I love the idea of this guy just going, Joe, Joe, get down to the first floor, see if he sticks the landing. <laughs> yeah this book was crap wasn't it it was and as I said in the recap I really hope that the Jamie Suzanne who wrote it is in a house fire and needs to be rescued by firemen of that ilk because Ouch, that's bleak. well it was just horrible because I've worked with loads of firemen because I used to work for the funeral, ser uh, funeral service and a lot of firemen get a second income because their income is shit by putting their shoulder under a coffin and uh, or conveying uh, bodies around as necessary and they're all lovely brave wonderful human beings and this person's just like yeah there are a bunch of dickheads who won't do anything so bad jamie suzanne bad i agree the fire department's usually amazing and helps out in situations where you wouldn't expect them to and it's one of the services departments here in the united states that you could be safe calling so i was really upset that they were so maligned here for no good reason just to turn his dad into a hero it wasn't even that's not even really what brought them back together so much as just patrick disappearing and being in danger uh i did like sort of that as he disappears and they find out what's going on jessica and elizabeth find out what's going on elizabeth kind of wants to tell but jessica thinks that his parents need to be punished which is pretty good jessica but also makes me wonder as she gets older who all is she going to punish? And I have to say, on one side, Elizabeth did the right thing by telling the parents. But if he had run away for pretty much any other reason, bad Elizabeth. There are obviously many occasions when a minor needs to leave the familial home for the sake of their emotional, physical and mental health, well-being. And if it had been any of those reasons, Elizabeth has just put a child back into an abusive situation. Whereas uh, Jessica's just ruthlessly going, yeah, punish them. Well, this ties back to that book where she, uh, Elizabeth, reunited the father and son who were estranged. And it's just like the Jamie Suzanne's never had any sort of concept that 
parents and children are sometimes estranged for real important reasons, it's always, oh, it must be fixed. They have to be with their biological parents or it's not a real family or they're not actual people or they'll grow up terrible, whatever. You always have to put them back together as if, as if that's automatically the healthiest situation. Did I dream this or was some talk in the recap about Jessica's motives there actually being quite good? Um, in that, that she was saying, yeah. yes, we can't tell the parents, they must be punished, in order to, so so that Patrick didn't run away again? Because Patrick yeah. was just going to go, fuck this noise anyway, and disappear. So at least by pandering, if you like, to what he wanted, he'd still be around and the the the, the, the know he was safe. Yeah, I did bring that up, um, because... It doesn't explicitly say it in the text, but it also doesn't explicitly say that Jessica is just being ruthless. Um, I think there might have even been a sentence that implied that she was playing for time because Patrick was ready to run off again. And Elizabeth was like, well, we've got to tell your parents now. Mm. And Jessica was like, no, no, they need to be punished, Liz. Chill out. And yeah, I think you should stay here and keep them worried, which was actually a smart thing to do even if she was being ruthless. You know, it was the right thing to do, even if it was for the wrong reasons. It does kind of play like that, because she suggests he goes and hangs out at the mall or someplace public where he won't really be found, because there'll be lots of people around, and then come back to Winston's place at night to stay again, instead of, you know, running off with 20 whole dollars to his name. That he's going to borrow from Winston in the first place, he doesn't even have it himself. It's not as if he could go busking with his really crap saxophone skills. <laughs> this is just there, like, you know, playing Frere Jacques, really, badly <laughs> outside Gap or something. I like, the, I, I like the idea that he did grow up to be Tim Capello from The Lost Boys, and he, you know, that's that's adult Patrick Morris all greased up and playing a sax in 1980. Headcanon accepted. <laughs> yeah. It would require time travel. I'm, I'm just going to put that out there, but... Yeah, this is not? Sweet Valley. Sweet Valley already has time travel, basically. True, because by the end of this series, Jessica starts mentioning email. I believe in one book she actually says, this is the coolest thing that ever happened since email. And it's like, really? Jessica thinks email is cool? When was okay. that written? Early 90s. So, so well, it was that... a big deal. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But it was still, yeah, didn't quite fit, but... Yeah, I am surprised that you haven't brought up your buddy's song reference, which is pretty much the only reason you took this book to recap. That's true. Yes, there was there was a concert at the lake which Patrick wasn't allowed to go to, and it was played by the Wild Ones, which is the band name in the movie Buddy's Song, which is based on a trilogy of books called called Buddy, Buddy's Song and Buddy's Blues by Nigel Hinton and believe me at one point I will recap them because they are a part of my childhood but yeah literally that was the only reason I didn't come up with a reason to swap oh no I did deliberately swap with you didn't I Wing? You did yeah so I could have the dog book and I thanked you at first I probably shouldn't thank you anymore yeah, and I consoled myself with at least I could make a long-winded reference that literally nobody will get. <laughs> that sounds your raison d'etre, to be honest. All right, since we can't actually talk about taking charge, let's move on to number 27, teamwork. In teamwork, 
Jessica and Elizabeth are desperate to prove themselves mature and old enough to do things on their own, like throw a fancy dinner party for their friends, and so are set with a task by Alice and Ned, raise enough money on their own to pay for their bus tickets to visit their great aunt Helen. Jessica shoots down most of Elizabeth's ideas, but finally they agree they'll walk dogs after school, but not on the weekends, because God forbid Jessica do anything but hang out with the unicorns on the weekends. This is a terrible idea. I don't even have to read the book to know it's a terrible idea, though I did read the book. Do you know why I know it's a terrible idea? Because way back in book number five, sneaking out, Jessica nearly got a sweet old dog killed. There is no way she should ever be allowed around dogs again. And yet, not only did Alice and Ned allow them to do this, despite having some decent moments of parenting <coughs> in this book, a bunch of dog owners are totally fine with trusting their dogs to preteen strangers with no proof of experience with dogs. You are all terrible dog owners, and if Monster Dog didn't hate other dogs, I would steal all of your dogs. Well... And if your dogs were real, but that's beside the point. Things go as expected, with Jessica quickly leaving the bulk of the work to Elizabeth. Thank God for Kid Matthews, who was so desperate to interact with a dog that he's willing to do Jessica's half of the work for free. Things really fall apart when Elizabeth decides to start boarding dogs at the Wakefield house over the weekend, because that's absolutely a choice a pet owner should make to leave their dog alone for days with preteen strangers when they've never even met their parents and a Mr. Quincy drops off his dog Joe for a whole entire week. Elizabeth and Ken quickly figure out that Joe has been abused, decide it must be by Mr. Quincy, which is a valid assumption. And then, when Elizabeth flat out refuses to tell Alice and Ned, despite Jessica being the one who wants to tell their parents this time, because apparently she learned something from the previous book, they all go into an elaborate scheme to hide Joe from Mr. Quincy, which involves cutting and dyeing his hair and literally taking the dog to a farm. Joe runs away from the farm and Joe and Mr. Quincy both end up at the Wakefield house at the same time, only for the twins and Ken to finally tell Alice and Ned about the abuse. Ned threatens Mr. Quincy to <coughs> rely on him for the rest of his life to make sure he doesn't ever get a dog again. Ken gets to keep Joe, even though he spent ages telling him no dog, and the twins don't even really get in trouble for once again keeping a dangerous situation from their parents. So much for that decent parenting, Wakefield. Well, I'm sure we can do a better job of talking about this book than we did about the previous book. <laughs> I don't know. I still didn't like this one very much. Mm. Um, I think we had a run of, of rubbish books, and mine and Wing's books were terrible. Um, it just felt like a rehash of an old plot, and I don't get why... Uh, the twins didn't tell their parents because at least in Boys Against Girls <clears throat> however clumsy and lazy it was the book literally opened with and don't come running to me about yet another teacher just 
tell your bloody parents. I mean, I know they couldn't give a shit and they're gin-soaked, but, you know, tell them. I say, and literally in the last book, they're told that, you know, yeah, you need to solve some of your problems yourself, but your parents need to know about things that are dangerous and important. And then in this book, they're told the same thing, and yet no one ever seems to learn, except that Jessica did learn, but this time Elizabeth shoots her down. They keep flip-flopping on which twin understands the truth and which twin doesn't, and it's really obnoxious, the lack of continuity, even though I really shouldn't expect continuity at this point. The thing with telling the parents in Sweet Valley is that the adults in this series are, are demonstrably absolutely shit at literally everything. They can't teach, they can't impose morals, they can't discipline, they can't praise, they can't... I'm surprised they can walk and talk and breathe, to be perfectly frank. I think that the fact that the twins and the rest of the kids don't tell the parents or the teachers when things go wrong, I think that's a sensible choice. The, the adults are uniformly without merit. They could have told Ellen Reitman's parents. She's Remember, her parents actually thought that when they found the money and buried treasure, it still was theft. And it was additional deception. So they should have told Ellen Reitman's parents. Yeah, well, one swallow doesn't make a summer, does it, darling? Yeah, there's just silence and... <laughs> just, because, just because one of the adults has proven at one time not to be a colossal asshat doesn't I... mean that they are... Oh, let's, let's go to Ellen Reitman's. She is now the village elder. Her parents are the ones who will be the arbiters and the bastions of all that is good in Sweet Valley. I understood the metaphor. I just thought it was a really little old lady phrase to use. Okay, well, how about a broken clock still is right twice a day? How about that one? Also kind of little old lady. Okay, beg your pardon then. How about something like, oh, uh, I can't even be bothered. <laughs> Let's see, um, let's see, I don't know, on Twitter you can only dab three times before Teeny Temper comes out and storms easier. I don't know what the kids are into or what goes on, <laughs> but uh, there we go, that's all you're getting from me. Because that certainly was a little old lady. <laughs> yeah, well, oh well, oh well, get off my lawn you kids. Isn't it Tiny Temper as well, not Teeny? Oh, get, get lost with your Snoopy Snoopy dog dogs or whoever's cool. I don't care. <laughs> to be fair, I think that Raven has a point in how they actually act in each book. However, I think we're supposed to be suspending our disbelief because we're certainly told, at least, that these are, are good parents. They're a kind, loving family. They're supposed to be able to talk to each other. So if I have to suspend my disbelief about pet owners leaving their dogs with fucking teen preteen strangers, I certainly am supposed to suspend my disbelief that their parents are good, which means that I don't understand why they don't tell them. This case slightly less because they are trying to prove themselves adults, but because it happens over and over with really dangerous situations, it's obnoxious and I'm annoyed. I mean, I can see that from um, what you said about the at the end of the last book, they basically tell parents when things go down, and that was the the... the the motto of that book, really. So, sure. the fact that they've just moved on straight away, so it's like, nah, the parents can fuck off, we don't care. I, I can sort of understand your, your, your worry there, I guess. 
So yeah, my biggest issue with this book is actually the fact that I could not wrap my head around the idea that pet owners would leave their dogs with preteens who have no experience with dogs. They're complete strangers. Like, I just could not wrap my head around pet owners doing that. And that's a really hard thing to be uh, catching on when the entire book is built on that purpose. I would just like to point out that when we all met up in Vegas and Santa Cruz and everywhere, Wing actually checked her dog into a kennels that she actually went and saw in person a couple of times and they were going to send her pictures and daily updates and I think, you know, if she'd have asked them nicely, they'd have put Monster Dog on the phone with her. Wing takes dog ownership seriously and rightly so. Well, we just took our cats in a sack and hid them behind a bin, didn't we? <laughs> yeah, I think we all take pet ownership very seriously, but yes, it, the, the point is made with Monster Dog. We enjoyed getting the daily updates and the photos. That was very, very cool. It was uh, delightful. The one thing I w- that they were great, but <laughs> True. that's beside the point. So. I will say that, yes, I understand your frustration and incredulity at the fact that the kids were just basically approached by strangers and had dogs attached to them but these are sweet valley teens these aren't your normal teens who go around in hoodies with bubble gum and you know trying to i don't know what throwing apples at policemen's helmets or whatever whatever trouble kids get up to these days scrumping scrumping yeah (laughs) urban theft (laughs) sorry countryside theft yeah, scrumping, stealing apples from Farmer Jackson, or whatever they do. These are Sweet Valley kids. These are nice kids. They wouldn't do anything naughty. They're just, you know, the naughtiest thing they'd do is that, I, I don't know, they'd sort of substitute one of the other kids' homework pens for invisible ink pens, just so things could get, you know, a, a, a little bit crazy. Uh, beg your I... pardon for the use of that word. Um, but... I think the Sweet Valley-ness of this whole thing is underestimated. I think Sweet Valley kids could be trusted with your, with your dogs. It's Sweet Valley adults that can't be trusted with anything. I and bet. certainly I should trust Jessica, who, as I've said, was left in charge of a dog, stuck out of the house, let the dog run away and nearly die. Yeah, yes, well... Certainly no problem there. Jessica's probably not really a Sweet Valley kid, isn't she? She was just left in a box by, by some... Some people from the, you know, the urban sprawl of New York or something, just... That or she is the queen of Sweet Valley. (laughs) I don't know, I like to believe that the twins were just, like, gifted to the Wakefields and it's all some sort of social experiment and the government is watching. That's very bleak. This isn't Bleak Valley time yet. The one thing I didn't like about this was the fact that they decided one of the good ideas was to take what was obviously a very beautiful dog... Then give her a haircut, paint it blue, and and then you know hide it in a, in a farm as if that was like this. That was such a short-term solution. When the guy comes back, he's not going to go. Oh, well, you've lost my dog. Okay, then bye, and then leave. Is he? Right. And the the fact that they don't even think about him suing them ever when their dad is a lawyer. That really should have been the first thing that they went to. But also, uh, they used washout paint the first time that dog gets wet drinking water the paint's (laughs) gonna start to go and the whole jig is up (laughs) just want to go back to the whole sued thing no contract no adult witnesses perhaps he never left their dog with him with with the kids that doesn't mean a lawsuit wouldn't be a pain in the ass 
Mm. It's okay. Ned is, Ned does all disciplines of law: litigation, real estate, adoption, painted dog law. Yeah. And now he's a private detective who's going to stalk uh, the owner forever to make sure that he never gets another dog. He might not be a private detective, but he's definitely a dick. (laughs) (laughs) The power has gone to Raven's head, and I've never been happier. Between the three of us, we have more law experience than any of the Jamie Suzannes ever. I think Raven's got three years. I've got 13 years and wing how many years in a law firm have you got well uh i have a legal degree as well (laughs) as uh seven years of practice full-time and 10 years of part-time practice yeah so i think we know more about the law than ned although we're multi-disciplined you know yeah I mean, my I, knowledge I, of the law was basically where to put the archiving files. I wasn't really out there, you know, objection, overruled, denied, I, or whatever goes on in law. <laughs> I suspect you're more aware than the Jamie Suzannes that uh, there were different practices and the lawyers didn't just gleefully swap as the uh, plot demanded. True, true. Anyway, let's go back to the dog talk. Yeah. I do. You can tell that we don't like these two books at least because we cannot stay focused on the actual recap to save our lives so i did there was actually i do want to take this little side note there was actually some decent parenting in this book ned and alice shoot down the idea of this fancy dinner party because the twins aren't old enough and mature enough mostly because they aren't old enough to understand the work and the money that goes into it and the same with them requiring that the kids pay for their tickets when they come up with this scheme to travel alone by bus to visit Great Aunt Helen, they want them to understand the value of a dollar, which, you know, is kind of a moot point in Sweet Valley normally, but at this point there is actually some okay parenting going on here until their kids are once again allowed to try to deal with dogs. But obviously we're taking that as a given as something that makes sense in this book. It might have been okay parenting to you, but I think forcing them to pay their own way to go and visit their aunt is a bit rich to be honest okay if they were saying oh we want some money to go and see the latest johnny book concert at 3 p.m in the local lake or whatever it's whatever it's going on second but, lake yes but the fact that they were going you know oh we want to go and see our aunt that'd be nice that'd be a nice family time and they were like yeah pay your own way we don't like her she's a bitch but they are quick to say no mum and dad you're not invited we're going to see aunt <laughs> helen without you yeah well, that's just good sense isn't it the parents are stupid well, it is good sense, but actually, the point of the trip is not so much they want to see Aunt Helen, though they do like her, but the point is that they're trying to prove that they're mature and old enough to do these things that even Stephen is allowed to mm. do as an actual teenager versus preteen. So the fact that if they're trying to prove themselves that they are then supposed to take charge of all these steps, I thought made a lot of sense. Not necessarily in big picture paying for your own money to see your family because that seems very weird but if you take this concept as a way to prove that they're old enough to do these things then sure that part makes sense to me. Uh, yeah okay I, I, I can give you that i can understand that yeah it was more about the fact that it proved that we're old enough although i will say jessica's drive to prove that she's old enough to be trusted is going to backfire on us spectacularly real when she realizes that that means she can be tried as an adult for whatever crimes <laughs> that she's been doing so 
I personally think this would have made more sense uh, instead of going to see Great Aunt Helen, who we've never heard of before, if they'd have wanted to go and see their cousin Robin, who's the same age as them. And this is the subject of one of the Catherine Applegate books. Oh, that's a really good point. Jessica's Secret. That's where Jessica gets her first period given to her by Michael Grant and Catherine Applegate. But they want to go and see their cousin Robin, who's the same age as them. So I think it probably wouldn't have jarred Raven and I so much, who mm. we're not as close-knit as Wing is with her family. So we see visiting arts as a bit of a chore. So if they'd have been like, oh, we want to see our cousin Robin, who's the same age as us, and we could, you know, have fun with then it would have made much more sense that this was a treat rather than just checking in with your family, which is kind of how Raven and I see it, because we're antisocial dicks who don't really get along with anyone. That's actually fair, because even though I am also an antisocial dick, uh, I do family super important, and we are very close-knit. And growing up, we spent a lot of time with our aunts and great-aunts. That was a fun thing to get to go do. So yeah, I guess I could see the difference there. If it feels like a chore, then it makes no sense that they have to earn their own money. Whereas if this is a fun thing to do, then yeah, it makes sense that they are earning their money to prove they're old enough to, to be allowed to do this fun thing on their own. Yeah, yeah. So taking it away from, let's move on from the actual chore and go back to the dogs. Is anyone surprised that Ken Matthews is basically a dog whisperer? I mean, with this Sweet Valley itself, no, because there's someone who can magically do whatever they need done in every (laughs) book, so why not Ken Matthews? Also, he's short enough, he's pretty much on level with them, isn't he? That is true. Maybe he just wants something to ride. (laughs) Yeah, he missed out on the horse book. He's like, yeah, I'm going to get a St. Bernard. (laughs) Well, he couldn't climb on the horse, but also, could could you say that dog breed again for me? Say Bernard. Is that how you pronounce it over there? Yeah. Do you say Bernard? We do say Bernard. It's a Saint Bernard. How interesting. Yeah, it's it's definitely Saint Bernard over here. The patron saint of pipe smokers, I believe, was the advert back in the day. How wild. I love Mm. that. This is almost as good as the time I found out how you guys say urinal. Oh, no, that was just me. I No, your Urinal's fine. Yeah, I can't remember how I said it, but it, I was not being an accurate representation. No, you it also was. said urinal like we do. I don't know, maybe Dove's quite posh. Maybe she was like, you say urinal, I say the, the yellow fountain fairy cave. <laughs> so, my favourite part of the book, even though it was also the part that frustrated me, was the dogs, of course. I went through and put little links to all the pictures. The dogs are super sweet. It's fun how much Jessica and Elizabeth underestimate or overestimate, depending on what dog they're talking about. And even though I preferred Jessica, who is scheming instead of just shirking her duties, it was kind of hilarious to see Jessica almost immediately start putting her chores onto Elizabeth and yet expect to get to keep her half of the money. And Elizabeth just kept letting this happen. Elizabeth's an idiot, though. She really is. She's Um, just an enabler. She's genuinely awful. I mean, I think she should take 50% responsibility for all of Jessica's issues because, you know, that's what Jessica wants. And Elizabeth loves doing what Jessica wants. Except when she doesn't, which it's just never any continuity to it. Hmm. I was just going to say, to be honest, I didn't like this book at all it's a book i usually skip 
even back in like the 90s i would just skip this book and taking charge because they were just dull the storyline didn't keep me interested and i wouldn't read it more than once even for completest reasons Hmm. yeah i mean the the dogs were the best thing in it but then they, they they were they were the best thing about a very bad book so they weren't great yeah. themselves it was the the what what was the breed of dog that was the beautiful white one that was samoid um, what samoid samoid okay yes the samoid was uh, the was excellent it was lo- a lovely dog but the rest were just like carbon cut out dogs to be honest and the all the owners of the dogs were carbon cut out people. The the ba- even the baddie who was abusing his dog was just rock up in a posh car. I've got a dog. Um, I'm out of here now. Bye. And then coming back later, go where's my dog? Ooh, I hate you. I would have got away with it if it wasn't for you meddling kids, Scooby Doo villain. I you think know? I may have said the wrong dog type because Wings got a look of concentration on her face that either means. Samoid is said vastly different in the US, or I said a completely different wrong uh, dog type, but that is what a Samoid looks like. I was remembering the front cover. My mum used to breed dogs. Uh, no, I think it, it is a Samoid, but we do pronounce it differently here, at least as far as I have known. And actually, that brings up another point where I was having a hard time suspending my disbelief. How in the world did Mr. Quincy end up with this really fancy purebred dog? Yeah. He obviously hates dogs. He doesn't want to take care of it. He's abusing it. Like, I don't understand how he ended up with it. A mutt, maybe, but an expensive purebred dog? I have a theory. I had a theory. Oh. Raven first, then me. Thank you. I have a theory that he rocked up in a posh car. I reckon that he got the dog in a divorce. I think That's, that yeah, he, his yeah. wife, wanted this posh dog. They then split up, and he was a massive dick about the whole thing. He said, well, I'm keeping the dog. I'm not going to apportion blame in the divorce, but it was probably his fault, to be honest, because he was an, an absolute arse. Um, so, yeah, I think he got the dog, and that's why he, wasn't, he didn't really care about it. Just getting that dog off his ex-wife was important to him. So, therefore, he didn't really love it after that. That was exactly the theory I was going for. Mm. Got the dog in a a split and, you know, winning the ownership of the dog was just a stab at the ex. And now that he's got it, he doesn't know what to do with it. So he just kicks it around the room because it reminds him of his ex. And he probably kicked her around the room because, let's face it, if you're going to beat up on something that's, you know, perceived as weaker than you, odds are you may not draw a line between animals and humans. That makes sense. But when you both came up with theories, just that I really expected one of you to say that, like the car, the expensive purebred dog was a status symbol, that Mm. once he got it, he didn't realize how much work and how annoying and how needy it would be. And so that's what led to it, which is something I literally just thought of Mm. as you guys were talking. So I think both theories are perfectly valid and did not think of either of them while reading and recapping so thanks for that guys that helps well i prefer yours because with mine and raven's shared theory it means he he had a relationship and i probably well i think it's it probably wasn't fun for the woman involved assuming woman 
So well, at the very like, least, his partner gave up a dog that the partner wanted. In your theories, which means that they left a dog with a potentially abusive man, which is kind of shitty behavior on their part too. Well, I don't think that they left the dog willingly. I think that he probably had better lawyers. Maybe he was the breadwinner in the relationship, and yeah, maybe he hired Ned's firm. <laughs> dog law. Kids successfully stole this dog. An adult yeah. in Sweet Valley should have been able to successfully steal this dog and then get the hell out of Sweet Valley. That's a good point. I really hope in three books' time, like, the nice ex-girlfriend rocks up and she's like, oh my god, you found my dog. He he wouldn't let me have the dog. He, you know, changed the locks and I phoned the police. And, and Ken's just like, but that's my dog now. And everyone's <laughs> really sad. And they have to cut the dog in half. But see, that would never happen, not because of the cutting the dog in half part, but because that would mean that a future book would have to reference a past book. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll be surprised if we ever hear about Ken Matthews walking a dog. I think it's actually, yeah, I don't think that ever happens. I think towards the end, they try to reference previous books, but they quite often fall on their face. Like, my favourite example is the fact that... Um, there's a book, I can't remember what number it is, and my browser is frozen, so I can't look it up, but it's called Elizabeth and the Orphans, so you pretty much know what you're going going to get there. Don't pull that face wing. And one of the orphans is called Melissa, and then in about eight books' time, Melissa's mum picks her up from the Dairy Burger. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> bit <Wow>. of a fail. <laughs> so continuity, not really a thing in Sweet Valley. That is fair the takeaway from this book sadly is that as long as you lie and trick and steal and then eventually get caught you're still going to get your way no matter what and not really get punished for it which is exactly what happens to elizabeth jessica and ken though ken might just be caught in that wakefield loop of everything must be wrapped up with a neat bow but they both get to go they get to keep the money they get to go on this trip ken gets to have a dog no one is punished by actually not being mature enough to do things. It's just ridiculous. Even we if they were doing the right thing in the wrong way, it's still a proof that they aren't mature enough to do the stuff they want to do. I think we should actually start a page on our site of all the le life lessons you can take away from Sweet Valley. Like, you know, the best way to deal with bullies is to have a famous relative or, <laughs> um, or lock them, or or trick them into a cave that's going to flood. Exactly. The best the best way to deal with animal abusers is to paint a dog blue and hide it in the forest. Yeah, I think there could be very interesting life lessons here. I won't tell you which book this comes from, but here's a life lesson that I have never forgotten. If you make up an outrageous lie about being related to a celebrity, don't worry, it'll come true. That sounds fascinating. Great. I really hope that Jessica sleeps with Jolly Book and then realises that they're cousins. Ooh. <laughs> um, actually, the very last unicorn book is Jessica going on a date with uh, Johnny Buck. I've never read it, but... Um, <laughs> So it could happen. Don't, don't point out how illegal that is, because I know. Wing is pulling faces and shaking her head. And I will uh, wait till that book to go on a rant about the age difference. All right, 
putting a to pin be in fair, that because that's many books down the road. Thank God. To be fair, she won a competition, so it's only creepy in the way that all of those kind of things were creepy in the 80s. And all right, fair enough. Given Jolly Book's history with getting the timings are wrong, is the date at like half past eight in the morning? <laughs> we can only hope. <laughs> Again, we've gone <clears throat> way off topic because this book isn't that engaging. All right, to sum up, dogs are great. Uh, the Wakefield parents started out with okay parenting and fell into terrible parenting. And if you lie and steal, everything will work out for the best. Go team Wakefield. <laughs> Let's move on. Yes, okay, let's move on to April Fool's. April Fool commences with our twinny heroes vowing to wow the town of Sweet Valley with a brand new prank to commemorate the day's frivolities. The usual jape, Liz pretending to be Jess and Jess pretending to be Liz, has been deemed old hat through overuse, and Jessica has devised a chapeau with a whole new slant. This year, Jess would be Jess, Liz would be Liz, and Sweet Valley would be a maelstrom of confusion in their assumption that the twins had pulled the swap, when in fact they had done no such thing. Shit is undoubtedly gonna go down. Predictably, the whole town is caught hook, line, sinker, bait box and copy of Angling Times by this amazing joke. Even though the girls explicitly inform everyone that Liz is exactly Liz and Jess is exactly Jess, no one believes them and japery is had. However, it seems that while Jess gains some tangible benefits from the Sweet Valley Middle staff believing she is Elizabeth, Liz has a horrible, torrid time being Jess. Liz wins an essay contest. Jess gets the prize. Jess passes notes in class. Liz gets detention. Jess miss misses a unicorn meeting. Liz is punished by Lila. Jess knifes a snitch. Liz does the time. At the end of the day, thoroughly dejected and downtrodden, the big reveal arrives. It was all a joke at Elizabeth's expense. Jessica, of course, was behind it all. The school staff, the student body, and the Wakefield family were all in on the yarn. Elizabeth's eye twitches, and her knuckles whiten as her hands wrap around the hilt of her katana, but the white-hot rage subsides, and the townsfolk live for now. April Fool! Average. Can I just point out my major beef with this book? Go for it. Jessica and Liz historically <clears throat> trade places. Every April Fool's without without question for the past 12 years, this has gone down in Sweet Valley history. These twinny bellends have only been dressing separately, like differently, for seven months. How the fuck did that joke even work previously? I mean... The first book opens with one of them, I think it's Elizabeth, going, people approach her all the time saying, uh, Jessica, how is April Fool's any different from their regular day? I can see that. I will say that just because they dress the same doesn't mean they acted the same. I still think Jess was a work-shy, scheming genius, and Elizabeth was a do-goody, befriender of the meek bookworm. So, even though they were wearing identical jumpers and trousers, I think that the the, the, the joke would still work on a, on some level. I, I do have I, the same problem as you, of course, because this thing has been happening every year for the last 12 years, as you've mentioned, or, but everyone seems to know about it, including people who arrived in Sweet Valley that day. Yeah, well, 
you say all that about them acting differently, but the implication from the first book is that they've never had separate friends before because they were a, a unit. So it's not so much the separate friends; it's still the separate personalities. Yeah, but they because they still, they're in the first book. They, they still never, sorry. They were never regarded as separate entities. They were just one of the twins. I don't really buy that because the first book on the first page they still had the same four minutes older identical things but Jess likes books and and um, sorry but uh, Liz likes books and Jess likes purple <laughs> yeah but Elizabeth like is hesitant at approaching Amy so they're not long, long standing best friends again you, you, I'm not talking about the friends I'm talking about the the personalities I'm not saying they had different friends I'm saying they had diff, def, they, the differences of the twins is rammed home in every single book including the first one the difference in their outlooks. I think that's true, but I can also see Dove's concerns about an entire April Fool's Day prank turning on pretending personality-wise to be different. That's such an acting thing versus how it always felt like a visual thing and that sort of twin switch, that it was weird to me that this is a thing that they've done forever that we've never heard of, first of all. But second of all, that if they dress differently, or if they dressed alike instead of differently, and allegedly only their parents and maybe Steven could tell them apart anyway most of the time. How is that really a prank, not a just day-to-day action? Yeah, I guess it would be easier to spot if they if they were dressing differently. It would be something that they do play up on that in this book. They, you know, right, it so, makes a lot of sense yeah. in this book that the dressing different, and especially because they're, my favorite part, going to dress like themselves to the extreme, which was kind of hilarious. Yeah. I guess, like, my point was that the first book feels like Elizabeth has no idea who she is because she's just Jessica's twin. Mm. So the idea that she would be visibly different before that point in actions alone probably wouldn't be that eye-poking. That's kind of what I'm driving at. Hmm. I wonder too if that's more Elizabeth than Jessica because I could see Elizabeth not necessarily knowing who she is but I feel like Jessica's known who the hell she is from day one she's so purely Jessica most of the time yeah, yeah. I mean, thinking back to that first book there was a lot of Liz talking to her mum about oh we are, we're, we're drifting apart and becoming more different so yeah that's fair I guess whereas Jessica's like yeah of course we are I'm Jessica yeah. this is what I'm going to do it doesn't really matter hmm. yeah yeah yeah, um, I'm Jessica. I'm gonna go stab a bitch for wearing purple. Why didn't I, why didn't the the Jessica that was the Jessica to the extreme wear purple? Yeah. I had that question too. Yeah, there yeah. was definitely no purple in there. Unless it was a very clever double bluff, like, oh, I am super Jessica, um, but Elizabeth isn't a unicorn. So if I was Elizabeth playing Jessica then I'm not allowed to wear purple. But no, I, I genuinely don't think it's that clever. Yeah, I don't think that either, because I, I still don't think that, although although it's intimated, I think other people are allowed to wear purple. Yeah, but think back to sta- standing out. Wasn't Lila going to stab a bitch for having the audacity to wear a purple sweater? I mean, they might not be allowed in the unicorn's head, but they certainly can't actually 
stop people mm. from wearing purple. So. I don't know. We've never seen Sally Holcomb since. I think they stabbed her for it. Well, like, all right, fair enough. I what? think she's in Nora McCandy's backyard again. What colour was um, Mr. Davis's clashing clothes in this one? Because he um, just passed a note around, didn't, didn't she? No, 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 with Mr. Davis. She passed a note around about Mr. Davis wearing a bad colour combination of clothes. Oh. It was Mr. Davis, because Mr. Davis had a go, and I was I made a point in the recap. Surely that was Mr. Bowman's shtick. Yeah, you're right, I'm sorry. I, I was just wondering if he was wearing purple, because <laughs> if, if one yeah. of those colours was purple, then, you know, maybe that's why she wrote the notes, just to inform Lila that they had to get the hit <laughs> squad out and take him down. I genuinely think Lila goes around killing bitches for wearing purple. Like, <laughs> we've never seen Roberta Manning or Sally Holcomb or anyone since, so... Yeah, I reckon there is actually a murder order out. Or yeah, I think that's quite a fun way of reading it, actually, is obviously in every single book that we read, new characters are introduced and hardly ever referred to again. If you go in with the headcanon that Lila has murdered every single one of them, like by the end of 186 books, she's got like a body count in the thousands. And yeah. you're just reading these books, and you're like, please, please, please. And ten books later, like, oh, they've mentioned Nora McCandy. Oh, thank Christ. She's still alive. We're okay. Yeah, and then Sweet Valley Twins 184 is called Nora McCandy and the Mountain in Her Backyard. <laughs> it's just filled with corpses. Lila mm. is the greatest serial killer the United States has <laughs> ever seen, and nobody knows. And she looks fabulous while doing it. Mm. That's why she wears purple, so no one can see the bloodstains. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, the, the, another thing I, I, I disliked about this book was the, the, the ridiculous japes and jokes that everybody else was coming out with. So, taking apart the fact that they decided to pull this, which I, I thought was quite a good joke, where if you take that, if, if you believe that they have a history of aping each other, then this reverse the, the the trend of doing that and being themselves is actually quite fun so they did that we leave that to one side everybody else's practical joke that they pulled was horseshit it's like Agreed. daddy wakefield comes down with his tie on backwards <laughs> Stephen pretends to have a heart attack <laughs> alice wakefield puts on a red wig look i've dyed my hair wet red no you haven't these are all jokes done by people who've got absolutely no sense of humour and have thought, it's a day for joking, I must I must push my joke button and do the joke things so everybody will laugh. Just awful. Yeah, I, I totally agree with Raven there. I do too, it was terrible, uh, they, none of them made any sense, it wasn't really even April Fool's jokes, even if you accepted it as... Even if you accepted them as jokes at all, they weren't really April Fool's jokes. So yeah, it was ridiculous. The twins was great if, like Raven said, you buy into the idea that this was something they'd done in previous years and now they're going to trick everyone. And then the double trick is actually pretty great too. So we Agreed. should probably talk about that. Yes, obviously at the end of the book when um, Elizabeth's had a very torrid day, of basically getting the blame for all the transgressions of her evil twin. Um, it's all revealed when she goes to the, the the April Fool's Day party that the school are running. I mean, what the fuck's that? Then it's all revealed when she actually goes in, um, although she's been 
banned from from going in that it's a it's all a big surprise and the entire day was masterminded by Jessica um, and everyone was in on the fact that the twins were going to be pulling this not switchy switchy prank thing apart from Elizabeth so that the the school the, most of the teachers knew the, the 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 family knew all the kids knew and it was all a all a joke to to um you know to to trick Elizabeth and that was actually really good I did see it coming a little because things were going too south too quickly I think it was still nicely handled and uh, the build was nice and the reveal was nice so at that point I could forgive quite a few of the book's transgressions I don't think my fellow recappers were on the same page as me there though I just think it's amazing that Elizabeth just didn't snap and go on a killing spree with the perfect alibi. It's like, yeah, it's um, April Fool's Day. I'm very clearly Jessica. I'm just going to kill some bitches. <laughs> I agree she really let that opportunity slide. But on the other hand, this is Elizabeth who constantly lets Jessica get away with everything. And I'm sure she would do that with everyone else, too. She just kind of goes along, woe is me until those moments when she feels like she has to save the day. So it kind of made sense that she would just let it keep happening. And a lot of this stuff is really over the top in ways that you're kind of side-eyeing it throughout the book, but does work when you have Jessica's scheme revealed at the end, because this is, you know, best Jessica. She's scheming and plotting, but not in really terrible ways, in a way that's positive and funny. Uh, definitely the best April Fool's joke of the book. And I like how even though a couple of the teachers didn't know what was going on, Elizabeth actually gets the detention. Jessica manipulates them into letting her have her way still, which is excellent. I also think that, I agree with all of that, that best Jessica, definitely. However, I do like to put an extra layer on that. I think Jessica is much cleverer than she makes out. Well, she's obviously a genius, but... Um, and I think that if she thinks back to the 12 years that they've done this prank, it could be a logical step that at one stage Elizabeth might say, hmm, I know what we should do. We should pretend to do this prank and not actually do it. So I'll be me, but people will think I'm you. And you'll be you, but people will think you're me. And immediately, Jess will have like gone, shit. If that happens, I'm screwed. Because then Lila will come up to Elizabeth thinking she's Jess going, Okay, so I've buried the body. What shall we do now? And all these hideous secrets will come back and Elizabeth will find out the truth about her evil, evil sister. So this book was Jess going, right, I've got to nip that in the bud and head that off at the pass. So we'll do that, but I'll clue everybody in so it can't come back and haunt me at the end of the day. Please write that book. That is the greatest theory I've ever heard, and it's completely turned me around on this book. I fucking <laughs> love it now. Yeah, yeah reread it with that mindset. It, it opens up a whole new, whole new aspect of the whole thing. Yeah, that's perfect. <laughs> okay. Yeah, you've killed the conversation. I don't Sorry, know where to go after that. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just sit here comfy on our laurels. Yes. Drop the mic. Uh, Boom. We're out. You mean on Raven's laurels? <laughs> I'm married. What what's his is mine. That's fine. That you can have my laurels. Work. That's okay. 
Okay, taking it back to the book, there's still some other things in there that are, um, that need mentioning. I think that um, one of the things that we should have, or, or Elizabeth should have realised early on, was that the parents would have seen straight through this, this if there wasn't something fishy going on. Because the parents are often told, or, or often pre um, presented, as being the only people who can tell the twins apart. So as soon as they said, as soon as Elizabeth was like, but mum, I'm Elizabeth. Alice sort of went, yeah, you're Elizabeth. What the fuck's going on? This is weird. Oh, you're not doing it this year. Okay. I agree. Elizabeth takes it as this idea that, oh, we're playing it so well that, that we're going to fool everybody. She should have noticed at that point. Like, hmm. inside the house, they should have known. The family should have known. Outside the house, sure, I can buy even their best friends not to be able to tell them apart because, as Dove said, it's only been seven months. So, you <laughs> yeah, know, true. whatever. But yeah, their parents absolutely should have. And when they didn't, Elizabeth should have included that something weird was going on. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You seem to be yeah. very quiet about this book. Is that all we have to say about it? Well, the thing I is, we don't hate it. So we're not desperately scrabbling around for literally anything to talk about. That is I, true. I'm, I'm not going to say that we loved it, although we do kind of now that we've got your theory <laughs> but we're not desperately going oh oh um i'm looking at a wall let's talk about the wall anything but this book fair enough well i was gonna say i had more to say and then you came up with that perfect theory and i've got nothing left <laughs> I'm, I'm just too i'm just writing the glory of that theory and everything is gone from my brain except admiration of jessica the killer <laughs> Excellent. Okay. Well, in that case, uh, I reckon we should m maybe move on. Jessica Wakefield doesn't exist. She's merely a construct in the mind of Elizabeth Wakefield, an abused only child trapped in the basement by unloving parents. Elizabeth Wakefield, whose imagination spawned the whole of Sweet Valley in an attempt to escape her lonely, imprisoned, apocalyptic clusterfuck life. The name for Elizabeth's altered reality? This desolate nightmare, the purple underbelly of a cracked psyche, the dark world of her mind and soul, Bleak Valley. Okay then, Bleak Valley. I've not come up with any theories yet, so I'm just going to sit here and hope something comes to me. That's fair enough, that's the, the tactic that I use every week to be fair. Yeah, and you usually knock it out of the park, so I'm kind of hoping that some of Raven's genius will hit me. <laughs> okay, so the first book of the series that we um, recap this week. Taking Charge. Well, I think that one's a little on the nose. Like a kid mm. who feels abused, even though he isn't really, uh, but a kid who feels abused escaping and their parents worrying about them and realizing how much they love them and coming to save them. Or at least someone coming to save them, even if it's not their biological parents. That's prime Leak Valley Elizabeth wanting an escape. To be fair, yeah, the emergency services don't do anything to help at all. So it's like, yeah, the police can't help you, Bleak Valley Liz. True. 
does the house yeah, all, you... does the house at the end fall down as well, or bits of it crumble just as he's he's pulled out? Yeah, bits of it are crumbling. Mm. Yeah, I think there's an, enough just to make like a dramatic exit. Yeah, in a cloud of smoke, but or dust even dust cloud. And even that can have some metaphorical ties to Bleak Valley in that if she is rescued, then the sweet valley she's built in her head is going to crumble. And as much as she wants to be rescued, that's something to mourn too, losing that sanctuary that she's created and populated with people that she really cares about. What about the saxophone? How about Elizabeth and Bleak Elizabeth was wanting some to just to, to do something i don't know what it would be but wanting pers- permission to do something very inconsequential like uh, you know get, can i have a new book please i've only got one book or a new magazine or whatever she's got to read or even can i have that cardboard box i want to make a dollhouse yeah uh, yeah like one doll with a shaved head yeah. and scribbles yeah and she doesn't get anything she gets no 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 shrift from her abusive parents at all so the metaphor for the metaphor of the um of the saxophone is just very clear for that and the fact like that, that, that the fact that um patrick goes and plays it behind the shed so you can hear the sax that the, the family can hear the saxophone music maybe she can still see the box that she wants under the crack in the door she can just see it in the hallway just being like full of i don't know crap using it as a bin or something and she's there thinking I could use I could have so much more fun with that. That's heartbreaking. Hmm. What about the running away? Is the running away just just so obvious? If you know what I mean, that's the the dream. Or I think it is, and I think she has to punish herself like for having that thought. So in Sweet Valley, Patrick goes back to his parents, and it's all fine, and they have jobs. And I'm assuming that'll probably be a dream of Bleak Valley Liz's because if her parents or one of them had a job, they would be away from Elizabeth for, mm. you know, a few hours a day, so... I also think that the Jessica and the Elizabeth relationship in this, talking about Patrick and Patrick's parents, is a very, very clear example of bleak Elizabeth's the crack in the psyche, because Elizabeth is very much, we must tell the parents, and Jessica is very much, the parents must be punished. And that duality is something that must go through her head oh i must i must respect these people who are my caregivers even though they are obvious obviously abusive against the i want to escape from these horrible horrible people and they deserve to die in a fire and the fact that she eventually tells or the fact that the parents come good in the end is one point her dream that that will happen to her folks but also her capitulation to their way of life. I think that's a really good point. It is depressing, but a really good point, too. But hey, hot fireman, so that's alright. Yeah, but they didn't do anything, so it doesn't really matter if they're hot. <laughs> that's the best kind of hot fireman, isn't it? Just stand around looking hunky. Speak for yourself, Raven. <laughs> I think Raven might have the way of it here. <laughs> Okay. Yeah, we don't have much on this one, to be honest. It was very surface-level Bleak Valley. Like, it it almost is Bleak Valley itself, so... Yeah. I kind of desperately want uh, Bleak Valley imaginary Jess to come to life and murder 
the bleak valley wakefields and just like lead elizabeth to freedom <laughs> or on a secondary killing spree whatever works <laughs> i mean she's already halfway there with the parents must be punished she's mm. starting to come out it absolutely could happen in a book or two i'm sure mm. yeah, yeah yeah okay so moving on to the dog book i struggle fitting this one in a bleak valley except that Elizabeth is so desperate to have something to love and that loves her that all of these dogs and Ken is a reflection of her wanting something that she can't have again. But otherwise, I struggle to fit this into Bleak Valley, so I hope you guys have something. I saw her actually as the dog. Yeah, me too. I was going to come up with that. Abused. You see earlier on, Elizabeth and Jessica are walking all the normal dogs, and that's like all the other kids her age who are just getting on with life. But no, she's the one who's being beaten up. Mm. And also, it's kind of very telling that in her dream, like as this abused dog, it doesn't go home with the family it was first given to. It goes home with Ken. It goes home with someone completely separate to the Wakefields, actually. So, Oh, that's a really good point. Yeah, possibly she rebelled against her her fantasy last book. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I take all that on board, and I, I, I agree with that, because I saw her as the dog, too. Um, as an extension to that, I saw that maybe the hair-cutting and the dyeing were part of her self-harm cycle, in that she maybe, you know, used some scissors to cut out chunks of her hair because she didn't want to be recognised as the, the the daughter of these these horrible people, and, you know, painted her face or, you know, cut herself or whatever. But as well as that, I also uh, the, the, her going away with Ken at the end, and Ken being the one who is the the person who is taking care. Ken is probably the the least threatening of the boys in her Sweet Valley fantasy. You know, he's physically the smallest. So yeah, maybe that that was also a a consideration when she placed herself with Ken at the end. Yeah, and Ken actually mm. went and got medicine from the vets for the dog yeah, as well. So to make her better. I yeah. think at this point, Elizabeth is very aware mm-hmm. that life isn't... Yeah. For her, her life is very different to most other kids, at least the ones that she sees. And maybe to even ultimate bleak it in this one, maybe the, the fact that they decided to hide the dog on a farm, um, maybe that was actually her suicidal thoughts, thinking yeah. that maybe if I went to the farm which is obviously the, 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 uh, the old cliché, then, then that would be the best way to be out of the hair of everyone. Um, so in a way, it's quite uplifting that she decided, no, I'm going to go with Ken, because that is not the release that maybe she was longing for at one stage. Yeah, so she did the self-harm with the haircuts and mm. scribbling on herself and... She briefly went there and then immediately ran away and tried to find Ken. Yeah. That's sweet. It's incredibly sad, but, you know, there's a little bit of hope thrown thrown in there. She keeps fighting, and that's the important part for her. So, Mm. yeah, I like that a lot. Yeah, I feel very sad about this. Okay. What about April Fool? I think after all the drama, because like, I, I don't know what in Bleak Valley has possibly caused all this upheaval, but this, you know, the last two books have been very hardcore on Bleak Elizabeth, so maybe she just needed some wacky hijinks, or <laughs> she's been knocked silly by one of her family members, 
and is just having a wacky hijinks dream. Also, if you take the idea that Bleak Valley Jessica is about to come out and kill their parents, this is Bleak Valley Elizabeth priming herself to be Bleak Valley Jessica, who is really Bleak Valley Elizabeth. All those layers of how no one's going to believe that she is or isn't who she says she is, uh, and then a part of her could come out and, and kill her parents or punish her parents, if you take it back to the earlier books uh phrasing hmm. so she's prepping herself for all of the blame that the jessica character will get for fighting her parents or also the idea that she could have this jessica construct do it but eventually all that blame is going to land squarely on her even if she doesn't feel like she deserves it either because she truly believes Jessica is separate and did it, or because she believes she was just saving herself and so therefore shouldn't be punished. But that's all going to come back on her in massive ways that it shouldn't, because all of these punishments together are an extreme overreaction to the situation at hand. So you can only imagine what would happen in reaction to her killing Leek, Valley, Ned, and Alice. Mm. I like it. I like it. Yeah. Uh, one thing that I didn't mention from April Fools, which I did want to mention, which it does think le- lends itself to Bleak Valley, is near the end of the book when the prank comes out and Jessica reveals it's all a big April Fools. She has a quite heartfelt speech to Elizabeth, saying, "I know that I can be difficult sometimes, and I know that I appear selfish, but I do love you as a, I, you know, and we will be best friends forever." And I, I almost I must apologize. I, I apologize for the the things that I do every now and then. But please understand that we are close and that we, you know we're twin sisters, and that that means so much to me. And aside from Bleak Valley, I thought that was a great little bit. It was nice to see that being the denouement of the whole piece. But from a Bleak Valley perspective, that could be the wild side of Jessica trying to rein in herself and take the fractured parts of their psyche and bring them back together by making Elizabeth and Jessica in the Bleak Valley closer. If she was planning on killing her parents, she could factor that as part of the thing that she wanted to do as a whole rather than as a separate entity. I like that because especially if you take the start of these books as the point where she started to construct Jessica as separate from her in some way, literal or metaphorical, then there's been a lot of drama and pain and bad situations since she separated them in her version of Sweet Valley. So if she's trying to find a way to escape Bleak Valley into Sweet Valley, it could be read in this book that she's trying to pull back those pieces, bring Jessica and Elizabeth back together even though ever since she started thinking about Jessica as someone separate that was outside of her, that someone she could befriend and she could trust, things have gone horribly wrong. So now they're trying to start the process of coming back together so that whatever they choose to do going forward, running away, suicide, killing their parents, whatever happens, uh, it is in the person. Elizabeth is whole again instead of separating herself out to survive. Mm. And so she does, whatever she does, she does it as herself versus all of these pieces of her. Yeah, yeah, that's really good. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. 
God, this is depressing. As usual. I've got to ask, did the... Do we should we do this every week, every month? Because it, it it's really sad. <laughs> and do people enjoy it? The listeners, I I ask you, the listeners, or the listener, whoever you are. Then <laughs> is this something that you're enjoying? Because it's heartbreaking for us. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Get back to us on that. Although <laughs> I I must say I do actually enjoy this, even though it's very sad. Yeah, I do too. I really look forward to it every month, even though I come out of it heartbroken, usually because of something Raven has said. Uh, so yeah, I usually come out of it heartbroken, but I like it a lot. But do let us know if we're depressing you with it, or if it's not any fun for you or not entertaining. Uh, we could go back to not including it, or we could just do a summary every couple of months, or even just a summary on the website itself, instead of talking about it here. Usually in depth, though this month has been kind of low-key even for this just this entire month of recapping whether we like the books or not there's just not been a ton to say about them <laughs> i will say though if your viewpoint is that you want more of this and you want us to get rid of the rest and just concentrate on this please keep that to yourself because that's just going to be super depressing and i don't think you're going to survive it <laughs> i mean you can tell me but uh we're clearly yeah. not going to change that part <laughs> yeah well, I like Bleak Valley, even though it, it does make me sad. I yeah, I, I like it too. It's just, I, I, I'm always very conscious that we have some wacky hijinks, as, as Dove likes to put it, throughout the rest of the episode. And it's like, right, okay, Bleak Valley, and there goes the energy from the room. And everyone's Kitty really sad. To be fair, that's why we moved it earlier in the podcast, so we no longer end on this terrible downer note. Very true, uh, very true. So on that, let's, sounds like we're done with Bleak Valley. We yes. can move on to what did you like best and what did you like least? Or what did you hate most and what did you hate least, depending <laughs> on how you're coming at it this month. Okay, Dove, do you want to start? All right. I hated my book, Taking Charge, the most because it was boring and stupid and did a great disservice to the emergency services. It was just a bag of pants, really. And I liked April Fool the best. Wacky hijinks. And thanks to Raven's previous theory that it was, yes, hiding the um, <laughs> the evidence of crimes has just elevated it more. So cool. I agree. I would have said, obviously, I hated taking charge the most. I would have said I hated April Fool exclamation point the least, but now I actually like it because of that theory. So yeah, hated taking charge, loved April Fool. There we go. Marvelous. I'm, I'm, I think I'm going to make it three for three because I didn't like um, taking charge at all. The one funny bit was Stephen complaining about the saxophone playing. That was the only bit that was the redeeming feature. The whole hackneyed plot about the, the dad losing his job and blah de blah. Oh, we we can't afford shoes or whatever. Just behave. Um, yeah, so that was awful. Uh, April Fool. I do have reservations about it because everybody was completely unfunny apart from Jessica. Um, but I think it 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 was definitely the best of the three um, for me. This is a huge seminal moment. We've never agreed universally on best and worst books this is ever true. so celebratory lemonades for all yes uh so listeners do a little happy dance or something you know this is <laughs> a big fucking deal 
or with me more than the fact that these J.B. Suzanne's were just digging lower and lower and lower into that barrel of horribleness. Mm-hmm. Yes. On the plus side, let's let's you know talk about Catherine Applegate and Michael yes. Grant. That's good. All that's right. Happy. Let's yes. end on a super happy note. Yes. So we why don't to... you tell listeners what happened? Basically, Michael Grant tweeted that Monster, his latest book in the Gone series, is coming out soon. And I replied that I had pre-ordered it. I wasn't actually following him at the time. This was the really exciting thing. And he liked my he liked my tweet, and then he followed me, and then he tweeted me to say that he and Catherine Applegate ghost wrote. He couldn't remember whether it was seventeen or nineteen books from forty-nine onwards of the twin uh, series. Of the twin series, yes, yeah. and. There is a very gushing entry on Sweet Valley Online with me just squeeing. I was barely coherent because I love Michael Grant and Catherine Applegate. I think they're wonderful, wonderful writers. And the fact that they got in con- uh, he got in contact with me was super exciting. It's a fun thread that you could find pinned to the top of the at Sweet Valley underscore Twitter account. But basically... Both Michael Grant and Catherine Applegate came in and gave information that they gave Jessica her first period, which uh, Dove had been telling me for a long time. So that we already knew. But they also talked about doing all the Christmas books, which, of course, should make Dove super happy because she loves the Christmas books. Just all sorts of fun things. It was a great conversation. And if you go read the gushing entry on the website, obviously very meaningful for Dove and for all of us. So that was fantastic. So super thankful shout out to Michael Grant and Catherine Applegate for being wonderful authors and very kind people talking to a bunch of recappers. Yeah, absolutely yeah. marvellous. Well done. Thank you, guys. Um, yes. Sorry that we had to, if you're listening to this, to try and find mentions of your name. We've made you listen to about an hour and a half of it already. But that's, uh, yeah, that's the way of the world, isn't it, really? <laughs> what can you do? <laughs> yeah. Well, I know that Wing replied to Michael Grant saying that it was a great period but or that you'd heard that there was a great period book and I remember deliberating quite long and hard over a, a, a slightly gross joke that I made because I, I think I replied something like also the slime that ate Sweet Valley and then for clarity that has nothing to do with Jessica's menstruation and I deliberated over that for about 45 minutes and then I went ah Nina Geiger would make that joke send <laughs> Nina Geiger is, of course, our favorite character in Catherine Applegate's Making Out series, if you're not familiar. And you should really maybe track down some copies and start reading them for a surprise thing that's going to happen later. Intent. (laughs) Indeed. Yes. Well, I do know that several people involved in that conversation did tweet to say that they'd bought some books. So, yeah, it did generate a bit of interest, which was lovely. So, yes, hint, hint, go forth, read them, prepare. Prepare for what is coming. So as you can tell, we do have a big announcement coming fairly soon, but we'll leave you with that for now. Uh, did you guys have anything else you wanted to talk about before we wrap up? I think we should mention our Twitters. So Yes. Um, I've recently joined Twitter as bookshelf underscore raven. So if you want to come and be bored by my various asinine rumblings, then feel free to come and friend me. I am at Sweet Valley underscore yeah, I tweet all sorts of nonsense. I am at Devil's Elbow Pod, where I obviously talk about the Devil's Elbow site that is twin to ours, which is point horror and other teen genre fiction, and also get into uh, 
flirtatious arguments with Dom all the time about what we are or are not doing and whether we're having a divorce and frightening everyone. <laughs> yeah, I don't think we could handle a divorce. It's been too many years. Um, FYI, I've known Wing for, would we say two years longer than my husband? I think so. 17 years for us. Yeah, nice. it's yeah, it's been a long time, so a divorce would be hard. Um, but you never know. We might get divorced. Who knows? Clearly. That could be our big announcement, you know. <laughs> All right. We're also going to start telling you what we'll be reading next time in case you want to read along with us. So next month, we will recap number 29, Jessica and the Bratch Attack. Number 30, Princess Elizabeth. And Raven gets Super Edition number 3, The Big Camp Secret. Let joy be unconfined. Yeah. Yes, again. I've got a book that I don't love. I was actually going to see if I could stealth swap swap with Wing, which I do from time to time if I can justify it. And I <laughs> think I'd just come up with a reason to justify it. And she put up her recap in advance, like her draft. And I was like, oh, too late. <laughs> Whoops, next time. All right, thank you guys for listening to our very rambling episode this <laughs> month. Uh, it's hard to talk on task when we kind of hate what we're talking about apparently hopefully next month will be slightly less uh, digression fingers crossed well we can't get any worse can we <laughs> <laughs> yeah we set the bar in all <laughs> go us thank you for listening to this month's episode of sweet valley online you can find all our recaps and previous podcast episodes on our website at sweetvalley.online. Come talk to us on Facebook at facebook.com slash sweetvalleyonline and on Tumblr at sweetvalleyonline.tumblr.com. Thanks again to Stuart Taylor of Legacy Breakfast for our music. We'd love it if you subscribe, rate, and review us at your favorite podcast provider. Thanks again for listening.